Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, before I uh, deliver the message this morning, uh, we want to welcome uh, a few um, returning guests uh, this morning. Diane Larson is here. Um, she has moved back from Texas, is that right? She's not very happy about it. She's not looking forward to the snow. <laughs> but she is, she is back with us this morning. Thank you, Diane, for being out. And uh, also want to um, welcome Ben and Eunice Stoner, uh, who uh, for many, many, many years, uh, Morning Hour Chapel has supported their ministry to the, ha the Navajo Nation um, through financial contributions, obviously through uh, our prayer, our uh, support, wherever we could give them their support. And I just wanted to have them come up just for a minute or two and uh, share with us what's been going on. I hear uh, Eunice was uh, honored on Friday night. Looking forward to hearing a little bit about that. Um, and I don't know who wants to start. Okay. Good morning, all of you. It's good to be here. Thank you. Uh, yes, somehow my high school alumni association, Mechanicsburg, somebody thought I had done something humanitarian. So anyway, it was supposed to have happened in 2020, this Hall of Fame thing. Well, 2020 was pandemic. Finally this year, they got it together. And, and it was really interesting, at least I thought, um, the fellow who t had that part of the event Apparently there were two other women alumni in years past from Mechanicsburg who had done missionary work. And I was like, wow, that's interesting. So anyway, praise the Lord. Okay. So on a technicality, we're retired, but the main thing that means is we don't get a salary from Brethren Christ World Missions anymore. <laughs> because we're still ministering to people constantly and uh, we still get uh, support for uh, ministry expenses and that's where the gifts from morning hour help out we still get uh, that every quarter so uh, the big thing i say we're doing as ministry is phone calls and one-on-one -on -one visits i do a lot of one-on-one -on -one visits with men and uh, Eunice does a lot of one-on-one -on -one phone calls with one lady in particular and some others at times too. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at right now. We just came for a quick trip. We got here Thursday morning at 3 a.m. and we're leaving Tuesday morning at about 3 a.m. <laughs> so, okay, you need to know any more, ask us. Yeah, they came here, didn't think I was going to call them up this morning. <laughs> All right. Um, want to share uh, with you a little bit uh, about the revival on the farm that uh, happened this past week over at uh, Thomason's Old Herb Farm. Uh, a couple of you were there every night. A couple of you were able to make it one night or two nights. Um, it was just, it was a wonderful time of revival. It was a time of, of rejuvenation of spirit. Um, the passage that they used for uh, the revival this year was Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, uh, which talk about uh, the renewing of our minds and, of course, the renewing of our hearts and our spirits. Uh, I want to thank the uh, youth group who was there on, uh, was it Sunday? Saturday. 
Saturday and the, uh, to set up uh, about 250, 300 chairs. Um, and then we're there on Wednesday to tear down over 430 chairs. Uh, they had to bring a bunch of other chairs out on Wednesday night. They had a, a really good crowd. Uh, they also were supporting some uh, local ministries, um, ARM, the Adams Rescue Mission. Uh, they were supporting Tender Care Pregnancy Center, um, Servants Incorporated, and uh, Child Evangelism Fellowship. Uh, so just a really good time hoping to uh, be involved with that again next year. It seems to be growing. It seems to be becoming more, um, uh, more churches being involved. So we're really happy about that. And want, again, want to thank the youth and want to thank you guys for uh, coming out uh, that we're able to make it. So I have a question uh, for you this morning, and uh, you don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Coward. Any cowards in the house? Okay, I got one, I got two, I got three, I got four. Only four or five cowards in the house. Everybody else is brave. Everybody else is strong, right? Now I don't mean how many of you are afraid of something, right? We're talking, who's afraid of snakes? Snakes, spiders, heights, widths, no? Um, we're all afraid of something, right? We're, we're afraid of those things. We're afraid of eating our vegetables, right? There's an actual medical term for being afraid of uh, vegetables. That's uh, lacanophobia. Um, and, and I always thought I wasn't afraid of anything. But apparently I have lacanophobia. I certainly do not have carnophobia, which is the fear of meat. Um, and I definitely don't have baconphobia. But being afraid of certain things, that's not... It, it's, it's not being a coward, right? Let me give you a couple of definitions of what it is uh, to be a coward. Anybody know this guy, the cowardly lion, right? He's afraid of everything, right? But from the Oxford English Dictionary, a coward is a person who lacks the courage to do or endure dangerous or unpleasant things. And from dictionary.com, it is a timid or easily intimidated person. And then lastly, from the Encyclopedia Britannica, it is someone who is too afraid to do what is right or what is expected. Anybody here a coward? I am sometimes a coward. I read a Christian, uh, Christian blog a few weeks ago, which kind of... Uh, I put, a, I put aside to, uh, to prepare this sermon. It said, most of us Christians are cowards. I mean nail-biting, knee-knocking, lily-livered, chicken-hearted, spineless, yeller, scaredy-cats. If we were angels, we would be the Reuben's cherub, uh, those, the little chubby cherubs. And if we were spirits, we'd be Casper the Friendly Ghost. This is what they're talking about. And this guy goes on, he talks about how Christians have forsaken being courageous in their faith in favor of being nice. So we've started to be nice. We don't want to make waves. We don't want to offend anybody. And we've erred more on the side of being nice than we have on the side of speaking truth. And there is a balance. You want to speak truth with love. We want to, you want to be respectful to people as you're speaking truth. But John Calvin uh, said this. He talked about, uh, especially as people are talking against uh, God. He says, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth is attacked 
and yet would remain silent. What do you think? Are Christians cowards? Are we too concerned with niceness that we won't speak the gospel with boldness? And if we're cowards, how do we overcome that cowardice? How do we stand up for our faith? How do we not resort to that live and let live, nicey-nice Christianity that doesn't help anybody? And this morning we're continuing a sermon series called, I'm Not, I Am. And we're going to be looking at the story of a woman who was tempted to take the easy way out. She was uh, tempted to sit back and watch horrible things happen for fear that she would die if she got involved. And that woman's name is Esther. And her story is told in the Old Testament book that bears her name. And we don't have time to read the whole story, but if you've, ever, if you've never read Esther before, read Esther. Esther is just this incredible book, and it's got everything that you could ever want. It's got um, intrigue, political plots of assassination, men in high positions doing horrible things, people stopping them from doing those things. It really is an incredible story of courage. And I encourage you to read it. Um, and interestingly, it's the only book of the Bible that does not mention God by name. But we can see God in everything that happens. And we're going to look uh, a little bit at Esther chapter 4 this morning, but let me give you a little lead up in case you're not familiar with the story. I'm going to give you just a really brief summary of, of what happened, and I'm going to give you a warning. There's some spoilers. So um, sorry about that, but just try to catch you up to chapter 4. So chapter 1 begins with King Ahasuerus. Uh, we also know him as King Xerxes. And he's hosting this uh, banquet for all of the officials and servants in Persia. And at one point during this banquet, during this feast, he sends for his queen, Queen Vashti. And he tells his servant, tell Queen Vashti to come and appear before my uh, servants, before my officials. And Queen Vashti says, uh-uh, I'm not doing that. I'm not coming out there. You come to me if you want to see me. And this infuriates the king. And he asks his officials, he asks his counselors, well, what should I do about this? He's embarrassed, mostly, by the queen's response. And his officials say, well, kick Vashti out and find a new queen. And that's chapter 1 of the book of Esther. And in chapter 2, we see the king looking for a new queen. And he holds something of a beauty pageant. And he brings the most beautiful women in the kingdom. And they spend 12 months preparing themselves uh, to be brought before the king. This is not a politically correct story. There's a lot of things going on here that obviously we would object to uh, in our modern sensibilities, but this is not, I'm not telling this story to make anyone upset. I'm telling the story because that's what the Bible says the story is. The king holds this beauty pageant, and one of the women who is brought to this kind of harem to try to impress the king is this woman named Hasada. 
She was renamed Esther when Israel was brought to Persia. And Esther is being raised by her cousin. She's an orphan. Her parents had died. She's being raised, uh, I'm sorry, by her uncle, Mordecai. And Mordecai uh, is one of the people that kind of works in and around the city, and he's not close to the king, but he has some dealings with some of the king's people. So long story short, Esther finds favor with the king. And Esther becomes the new queen. And the thing is about Esther is that she is from the people of Israel. She is a Jew. And Mordecai advises her to keep that a secret. Don't tell anybody that you are Jewish. And so she does. She listens to Mordecai. Now in chapter 3, we switch from Esther and we move to this guy named Haman. Haman was uh, a nobleman in the king's uh, house. And Haman was promoted by the king to kind of be the, the second, second in command. He was the highest ranking person in the kingdom. And as soon as he got this honor, he walked out into the streets of Persia, into the town square, and all of the king's horses and all of the king's men bowed down and worshipped and paid homage to this man named Haman. Everybody except one. Mordecai. Mordecai would not bow down and, and pay homage to Haman because he believed that you don't bow down and pay homage to anyone except for God. And this furiated Haman. He was so angry that he brought this plot to destroy not just Mordecai. He brought a plot to destroy every Jew that was living in Persia. 75,000 people. And he almost kind of tricked the king into signing this decree saying that on such and such a date, we're going to go through the entire kingdom and we're going to slaughter all of the Jews. And the king signed off on this and stamped it with his signet ring and everything was set. And Mordecai was obviously not very happy about that. And this is where we get to chapter 4 in Esther. And Mordecai learns of Haman's plot to kill the Jews. And starting in verse 1 of Esther chapter 4, we read, When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's uh, gate clothed in sackcloth. So he didn't go into the city. He just stayed where he was. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So here we have Haman. He wanted to kill these 75,000 Jews. He wanted them to be exterminated because one guy wouldn't feed his ego. That's basically what was happening here. This guy didn't bow down to me, so I'm going to slaughter all of your people. You think that would be a cause of great lamenting? Would you be concerned if an edict went out saying, hey, we're going to kill all of the Christians because they wouldn't honor President Biden or they wouldn't honor you know, Kevin McCarthy, or they wouldn't honor whoever. And they said, well, we're going to kill all the Christians. How many of you would lament? 
How many of you would pray? How many of you would be fearful? This is what happened with the Jews. They were fearful. And the next several verses uh, of Esther chapter 4 talk about Haman kind of having this back and forth discussion with Esther. Now, he couldn't talk to her directly, but he talked to her through a third party, one of the king's eunuchs that was named Hathach. And they would send messages back and forth to each other. Mordecai told Esther what was going to happen back and forth in these messages. And in verse 8, we read, Mordecai also gave him, that's uh, Hesich, uh, a, a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say this. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. If I go to the king and try to talk to him without permission, he's going to kill me. As for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. It's been a month since I saw the king, since I talked to the king. He's not paying any attention to me right now. And if I go and try and talk to him right now, and he hasn't called for me, he's going to kill me. Esther's basically saying, I am not brave enough to do what you want me to do. I'm not courageous enough to stand up against this horrible thing that's happening to our people because I might die too. Basically what Esther is saying is, I'm a coward. I'm afraid. I know the right thing to do. What you're telling me to do, I know is the right thing, but it's too intimidating. It's too scary. I can't do it. Have you ever felt like that as a Christian? Have you ever felt like you can't stand up for your faith under the threat of something? Under the threat of losing your job or under the threat of losing your friends or your family? And most of us haven't faced this, but our brothers and sisters across the world have. Danger of losing your life for standing up for your faith. These are the things that some people face, and yet most Christians fear nothing more than being shouted down or called names. We don't want people to call us names. We don't want people to say bad things about us. We're especially afraid of, of, of names that end in the suffix phobic. You ever heard somebody called phobic? Abortion supporters tell us to shut up and keep our religions off of their bodies. And if you're a man who opposes abortion, you got it even worse because those women are really after you. And they'll look at you and they'll say, you don't have a uterus, you don't have an opinion. You don't even get to talk about it. Sit down and shut up. If you oppose biological males participating in women's sport because the male identifies as a woman, you're called transphobic. 
If you say that you believe that marriage is only between one man and one woman, you're called homophobic. And we don't want to be called those names. We'd rather just toe the line. We'd rather just do what everybody else tells us that we have to do. You're labeled as a bigot. You're publicly shamed for standing on God's word. And we do. We shut up. We stand down. We let sin win. And all because we're too cowardly to stand up for what is right, according to Scripture. Mordecai was more than a little disappointed in Esther's response. And he replied back to her through the third party. And starting in verse 13, we read, Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place but you and your father's house will perish. He says you and your father's house because she is the last of her father's house. You and everything that has to do with your father perishes off the face of the earth because you're a coward. Because you won't do this thing. And I believe that any time we are faced with a situation where we need to stand up for what God is saying is right or wrong, and we don't, we weaken the gospel of Jesus Christ. We weaken it. We weaken our brothers and sisters in Christ. We say to the people over in Egypt, those Coptic Christians that get beheaded on the sands because of their faith in Jesus Christ, your faith isn't really worth that much to me. You might die for yours, but I'm not going to die for mine. We make it harder for Christians to stand up for God. Every time we stand down, we're saying the same exact thing that Peter said when they confronted him about Jesus. I don't know him. Now, the good news is that God will find and use someone else to stand up for Jesus Christ, to stand up for faith, to stand up for what is right, even if we won't. He will find somebody else to do it. The bad news is that when we continually say, I don't know Jesus Christ, we might get to judgment day and we might hear Jesus say, I don't know you. Relief and deliverance will rise from another place, but you will perish. That's what our cowardice can do. But Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 10, starting in verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Beelzebub is just another word for Beelzebub. Anybody know what Beelzebub means? Literally means Lord of the Flies. Beelzebub was this god that people would worship and they would go and they would sacrifice people and they wouldn't burn them up or anything. They'd just leave them on the altar and the flies would come. And they would call him the Lord of the Flies.
In New Testament times, Beelzebub was another term for Satan. The Son of God was called Satan. The Son of God was called the enemy of the Father by those people who were supposed to know who He was. And if He is called Satan, how much worse are we going to be called? Phobic, maybe? Bigot? But Jesus goes on. Jesus says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Not what you have heard whisper. Whisper to somebody else and hope nobody else hears you. Not we're going to talk like this with our, with our hands up to our mouths. Hey, isn't Jesus great? Isn't Jesus wonderful? Don't you love what Jesus has done for us? Yes, I love what Jesus has done for us. But shh. You don't want to make anybody else mad. Jesus says, I'm telling you the secrets of the kingdom of God, but don't you keep them secret. Shout them. Shout the gospel for everyone to hear. And since he's saying it's on a housetop, let him see you too. Don't just shout from your window that's closed with the blind down saying, Jesus saves! No, get up on your housetop where they can see who you are. That's what Jesus is saying. Let it be known that you are my disciple. You don't have to fear these people. You don't have to fear what they're going to do. You don't have to fear what they're going to say. You just be my disciple. How many of us are now ready to go downtown to East Berlin, stand in the square, and say, Jesus Christ is Lord? Some scary stuff, right? Well, I don't want to do that. People might think I'm crazy. But Jesus knows that it's scary. Jesus knows this is not something that is within us to do. And that's why Jesus says, do not fear those who will kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. You don't have to fear being called names. You don't have to fear retaliation because you stand for God. You don't have to be fearful of being killed for your faith. What you need to fear is him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is what Jesus says. And at the end of this passage, he says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. When you shout it from the housetops, when you go down to the public square, when you get on your social media and you say, Jesus is Lord, and I believe everything that, that God says in the Bible, Jesus is going to say, I acknowledge you in front of the Father. But 
Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. When we stand before God and God looks over to Jesus and he says, this person says he knows you, son. What will Jesus say to the Father about me? What will Jesus say to the Father about you? Yep, that's one of my people. Stood in the town square, told everybody about me. Didn't worry about whether or not somebody was going to call him a bigot or a phobic. They stood up. I know him. I know her. Or when God looks to Jesus and says, this person says he knows you, son. Is Jesus going to look at you or look at me and look back at the Father and say, I have no idea who that is. I don't know that person. You can send them away. Mordecai ends his message to Esther at the end of verse 14 by saying this, And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. For such a time as this. Do you believe that you came to faith in Jesus Christ by accident? By chance? The Holy Spirit worked in and through you. The Holy Spirit worked in and through others. So that you would face the decision of whether to follow Jesus Christ or to deny Him. This was not an accident. This was not something that just happened. The Holy Spirit has been working behind the scenes since you were born. There have been Christ followers for almost 2,000 years. You and I have been in the kingdom maybe the last 60 or 70 years. A couple of you, 80, 90, I don't know. A short period of time. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. June 11th, 2023. A time when evil seems to be working with impunity in our world. A time when people openly mock God. And they try to shame us if we say anything about it. The really bad news is, is this is not just about the world. This is happening in churches. People call themselves Christian, but openly act against what is said in the Bible. And they're bringing a lot of Christians along with them. And they're using the same exact tactics. Fear and intimidation. If you don't agree with us, then you're not really a Christian. What? 
If you don't agree with God, you're not really a Christian. The world is going to twist and it's going to turn everything to make you look like the bad guy. How could you possibly not love everyone? I do love everyone. I love my sons more than you could possibly know. Do I stop my sons from doing things that are wrong? You better believe I do. Do I counsel them against doing wrong things when they walk out the door? You bet your life I do. Because I love them. Not because I don't want them to have fun. Not because I don't want them to fulfill themselves. Not because I don't want them to be the person that they were supposed to be. But because I love them. Are you a nice parent? Are you going to let your kids do things that you know are bad for them just so you can be the cool, hip mom, the chill dad? Dads, I got a message for you next week too. Or are you going to love them and protect them and tell them, no, this is not right. But we've gotten this way as Christians. My mother used to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say that. See, you guys know. Don't say anything at all. That's not how she sounded, really. Today, that saying might sound something like this. If you can't affirm someone for how they live their life, sit down and shut up. You're a bigot. And we do. We sit down and we shut up. And then we lament the state of the world. We whine about how the world is upside down. My mother used to call it going to hell in a handbasket. Anybody heard that phrase before? Going to hell in a handbasket. Why aren't we upturning the basket? Sorry for being really loud there. But why aren't we upturning the basket? Why aren't we pushing people out of that basket that's going to hell? And helping them to see who Jesus Christ is. Why? Because we want to be nice? Our niceness will send people to hell. Why won't we stand up? I think it's because a lot of us don't trust God. I think it's because we fear those who can fire us or imprison us or kill us instead of leaning on the promise that God is there for us. Esther finally made a decision about standing up for the Jews. In Esther 4.16, she tells Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Go fast for three days and three nights. 
The fasting is what Esther believed would make her strong. And when we fast, Christians, what are we also supposed to be doing? Praying. And that's what the Jews did. They fasted and they prayed. And Esther believed that that would give her the strength and the courage to face death. And look what she says here. Though it is against the law. Church, governments around the world are passing laws that will force you to deny Christ. Legally. These laws will tell you that you have to call sin good. That you have to affirm sin. They will tell you that you can't say anything against abortion. They will tell you that you have to do things that are counter to your faith, that you have to say things that are counter to your faith, and if you don't, you're going to be punished for it. Legally. These things are not coming. They're here. But the good news is, so are we. For such a time as this. It is time for us to stand up. It is time for us to stop being cowards. It is time for us to stop the knee knocking. Some of you younger people don't know that phrase, but a lot of the older people know what I'm talking about. Anybody know how you stop the knee knocking? Fall on your knees. You fall on your knees, they're not going to knock anymore. You fall on your knees and you start praying. Maybe you start fasting. Definitely, if you're going to fast, you need to be praying too. There's a surefire way to keep our knees from knocking. We get down on them and we pray and we pray that we can be courageous in this world at this time. And guess what? When we pray, just like Esther experienced, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You will be strong. You will be courageous. And notice that verse says nothing about guarding your body. He will guard your heart. He will guard your mind. Who cares what happens to your body? God made a promise to Joshua in Deuteronomy chapter 31, and we can claim this promise today. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. And this is the best part. He will not leave you or forsake you. Yes, if we rely on our own strength, we're always going to say, I'm not. I'm not courageous enough. I'm a coward. I can't do this. When you feel like that, when you feel your knees knocking, stop those knees from knocking. 
get on your knees and start praying because God goes with us. God's not going to leave you. God's not going to forsake you. And when we decide to stand up, when we decide that we're not going to let the world tell us that we can't talk about Jesus, that we have to affirm sin, God's going to tell you, don't worry about it. Go stand on your housetop where people can see you. Proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. God says, I go with you. I will not leave you or forsake you because I am. I am always with you. Don't fear those other things. They're unimportant. Be disciples of Jesus Christ. And the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and will guard your minds. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for today. Forgive me for being loud. But Lord, this is just... Maybe the most important thing that we can know as Christians in this day for such a time as this that we can no longer stand aside that we can no longer be cowardly that we can no longer be nice Christians we need to be loving Christians we need to stand up for who Jesus Christ is and what he has done and Father you know how hard that is. You see the attacks of the enemy on us every single day. Father, give us new hearts. Give us renewed minds. Remind us through your Holy Spirit what is important. And what is important is that you are not willing that any should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And that we are your church. And if we're not working towards moving people to Jesus, we're working towards moving them to hell. Father, forgive us, forgive me for not standing. Father, give us strength. Give us courage. Give us peace. And pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Have we been cowards? I have been. You don't have to answer me. But you know if you have been. It is time to stand up.
It is time to work for the kingdom of God no matter what happens to us with all that we are, with all that we have, love God with your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and love your neighbor enough that you don't want to see them in hell. You want to see them in life with the Father forever. God bless you this week.